Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. This is Ben Mankiewicz from The Young Turks. You're listening to the Best of the Left podcast. Now, let's, real quick, let's do the New York Times. Uh, All right, here's the story. memo. The, British, the, the story actually broke in England a little bit ago, but it was, on, it was in a book uh, released in January called Lawless World, written by a British lawyer and international law professor, a guy named Philippe Sands. Uh, and Channel 4 in London uh, broke the story in early February with several excerpts from the memo, but now the New York Times has, has reviewed, guys, all five pages of the memo. And here's essentially what it says. In the weeks uh, before the invasion of Iraq, uh, the U.S. and Britain pressed for a second United Nations resolution condemning Iraq, as we know, a resolution, of course, that they ultimately did not get. Um, But behind closed doors, the president was certain that war was inevitable. During a private two-hour meeting in the Oval Office, January 31st, uh, January 31st, 2003, he made clear to Tony Blair that he was determined to invade Iraq without the second resolution or even if international arms inspectors failed to find unconventional weapons, which would be why we were so happy to get them out and throw them out because the invasion was coming. We didn't care whether they found weapons. That's according to a confidential meeting, a a confidential memo about the meeting written by Blair's top foreign policy advisor, reviewed by the New York Times, and it has been authenticated by two senior British officials who refused to be identified because, of course, in England, this is breaking the law. Uh, they have a, they, they can't print this stuff, or I can't talk about it. All right, there's a hundred things to say and a, a lot more details. Let me jump in to say two quick things here. Number one, what's startling is, it's not startling to us because we kind of expect it, but for pro- I would imagine some Americans who still believe in this government and this administration, five days before Colin Powell went to the United Nations and argued why we have to get that resolution, the president had already told Tony Blair, I don't give a damn what happens in the United oh, Nations. I'm going to war no matter what. Well, let's uh, let's let's go. Let's read that part. That's that's the that is incredibly uh, uh, telling. Uh, quote: Our diplomatic strategy had to be arranged. Our diplomatic strategy, when they say we're going to try diplomacy, and he exhausted diplomacy. President Bush said it at the press conference uh, last week, right? That's right. Diplomacy. Absolutely. We exhausted diplomacy. Here's what David Manning, uh, Tony Blair's chief foreign policy advisor, wrote. Our diplomatic strategy had to be, it's essentially as if Colin Powell had written the memo. Our diplomatic strategy had to be arranged around the military planning, said David Manning. Um, the, the start date for the military campaign was now penciled in for the 10th of March. This was when the bombing was to begin. So, again, our diplomatic strategy had to be, plan, had to be arranged around the military planning, meaning there is no diplomatic strategy. The diplomatic strategy is to act, make it appear that diplomacy has failed leading up to March 10th, when we can start bombing. So in reality, it's not a diplomatic strategy at all. It's a public relations strategy. Let's pretend to do diplomacy while we prepare for war. Let us try to provoke them into war and then say, what could we do? We did all we could diplomatically. It is a 100% lie. These are the internal memos and meetings of the president with the British prime minister, carefully detailed and authenticated. 
There is no ands, ifs, or buts about it. Although, the, uh, 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 as you said, the timetable is in a, uh, it came at an important diplomatic moment. The Times reports five days uh, after Tony Blair and George Bush met, Colin Powell scheduled to appear before the U.N. to present his famous evidence that Iraq posed a threat to the world, and where he talked about the, the secret evidence. Going back to the article here, although the United States and Britain aggressively sought a second U.N. resolution against Iraq, which they failed to obtain, which they always forget to mention. The president said repeatedly he did not believe it. He needed it for an invasion. The memo, which was stamped extremely sensitive, circulated among a handful of Blair's most senior's aides. Again, has not been made public. The New York Times has reviewed it. The memo has, has reviewed it, and they've also authenticated it. While the president's sentiments about invading Iraq were known at the time, the previously unreported material offers an unfiltered view of two leaders on the brink of war, yet supremely confident. <laughs> confident, of course, because they knew they could fool uh, uh, the people of the United States and the, and the people of Great Britain. Memo indicates the two leaders envisioned... This is the best part. Well, no, it's not quite the best part. Mm -hmm. It's the second best part. Right. The memo uh, indicates the two leaders envisioned a quick victory and a transition to a new Iraqi government that, hey, look, they say it right here, Jenkins and Joe, uh, this transition to a new Iraqi government, the memo says, would be complicated. But manageable. Complicated but manageable. And Mr. Bush predicted, quote from the memo, quote, unlikely there would be internecine warfare between the different religious and ethnic groups. I find that encouraging and discouraging. Let me explain. I found it encouraging because the president, before the invasion, actually knew that there were different sects within Iraq. And I wasn't convinced that was the case. So I was like, hey, look at that. He did know there was Shiites and Sunnis in Iraq before we went in. That's a very, very small thing to be pleased by because that could easily be like, it'll be fine. They all hated Saddam and they're all Muslims. <laughs> well, yeah. that's true enough. Now, the, that's the tiny sliver of encouragement. The giant iceberg of discouragement is they're like, <laughs> Shiites and Sunnis, they'll never fight. Shiites Everything will be curves. fine. They're all, what they are at their core? They're Iraqis. <laughs> and they were again 100% wrong and you know indisputably wrong you know the word that, that comes up a couple times in this story which is uh, uh telling i think uh Jank, is uh, uh the they were so confident like it didn't matter we don't care if we find what we're so confident we're so you know and that indicates the hubris which we talked about on the show 3 years ago uh, and which obviously uh caused them enormous trouble is that they uh, and why they ignored everyone who said wait a minute they're like, well, you don't understand. We can't lose. We can't lose. It's like the University of Connecticut, I suspect, yesterday against George Mason. They had their little, we're not going to lose to George Mason. They're an 11 seed. We're an overwhelming number one we're seed. We're from the Big East. They're from this little conference, please. What are we doing in overtime? What are we doing in overtime? What? Are we, what? We're not going to the Final Four? George Mason's going to the Final Four? Iraq's in a Civil War? What? <laughs> I think the parallels are pretty obvious. Now, also, uh, Blair says back to uh, Bush, hey, listen, this United Nations resolution, it's obvious, and I, now I'm paraphrasing, I'll get to the direct quote in a second, obviously we're going to war either way, right? But, quote, it would be a nice insurance policy against the unexpected, saying like, look, if this war goes wrong, badly, for reasons we can't anticipate, we can at least say, if we got the U.N. resolution, hey, hey you guys voted for it. Right, the war. You wanted the war. We didn't want the war. The U.N. made us go to war. We asked for a resolution, and you gave it to us. Right. Now, as it turns out, they didn't have that insurance God policy. bless the U.N. <laughs> right. The U.N. made yeah. the correct move. You know, all this, you know, the Republicans love to talk about how the U.N. is bad. U.N. is terrible and, you know, inefficient and ineffective. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The United Nations... 
got it right. Yeah, and it turns out we're inefficient and, and ineffective. Yeah, and got it wrong. And got it totally wrong. Yeah, and there's no problems with a bumbling bureaucracy involved with our planning for the war in Iraq. I mean, come on, that's the definition of a bumbling bureaucracy. Now, um, uh, Murray Wass has found yet another crushing memo. Uh, memo this time that indicates that President Bush was entirely aware of the doubts that they had about the so-called aluminum tubes that the Saddam Hussein's he, regime was buying to make so-called nuclear weapons. There is. Oh, go ahead. No, I just want to say that he'd been personally warned. A number of times, not one time, but Bush had been warned personally a number of times that the aluminum tubes, that many people, in the not just in the administration, not just the State Department and the Energy Department, thought that they were for conventional weapons, but that also, even, in, even though the CIA's overall recommendation was that they might be used for nuclear weapons, was that many people inside the CIA were like, eh, I don't think so. Well, uh, what happened was uh, the president gets two different things. One is... Uh, National intelligence estimate that is larger, that's uh, in this case uh, on these issues of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, it was 90 pages. Right. And he takes those and he throws them away oh, without but, looking at them. No, but that's almost literally true because he says is very clear on the record that he did not read the whole 90 pages. You're the president. You can't be bothered to read 90, 90 pages about weapons. I mean, you got you're busy getting ready for an invasion. You don't have time to figure out if that you should actually have the invasion or not. And they, and literally, Dan Bartlett, who at the time was the sp uh, spokesperson for the White House, said, "Oh, the president doesn't have time to read footnotes." Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. It's unbelievable. Anyway, that was my excuse in college. Yeah, when you footnotes, it's not 90 pages of footnotes. It's 90 pages of stuff. 90 pages, pages of intelligence, of, of, of the it, substance. It, it meant that the page was shorter that you had no, to No, who read. doesn't love to see a footnote? You're like, oh, page three is three lines. It's awesome. And uh, Who didn't love a book, by the way, Jill, that started on page 16? Like, uh, that was awesome. The preface, the prologue, uh, thanks to the acknowledgments. Except bang, when page they 16. expect you to read that damn introduction and preface. Please, you find a book starts page chapter one starts on page 16. Fantastic. Yep. You, can, you can watch another 30 minutes of Magnum. Or Full House. Um, I don't want to go on too long about it. I'll just concur. I agree. You felt like, hey. Which is glorious. Somebody just gave you 15 pages. If somebody gave you 15 pages, I felt like mission accomplished. <laughs> right. <laughs> this book is done already. This book is done. Right. Exactly. Well, I wonder where I got that idea. Yeah. Uh, now, but to be fair to the president, you said, hey, listen, you know, uh, he's got a lot of 90-page memos he can't be bothered to read. You know, uh, so, but what they do is, they do this for every president, not just for the third sure. great president we have now. Uh, they do a summary, a one-page summary uh, for the president every day. The, the and Cliff's Notes version. I just want to. You're, you're right, and obviously, I, I don't expect him to read every 90-page summary. The National Intelligence Estimate post September 11th, pre-Iraq War. I expect him to read it. I expect him to read every page. And I of think, course. Well, I know. I, I know you agree. I just don't want us to gloss over that. I mean, it's for crying out loud. I mean, if Bill Clinton didn't read one in 1998, if uh, if uh, if uh, George H. W. Bush didn't read one in 1989, I get it. it because the world is not in crisis. But when you are planning, as we know you were, to invade another country that has not attacked you, I'd read it. 
and that you're basing that attack on this so-called national intelligence estimate that you didn't even read. I'd read it. I'd read it twice. I'd have it read to me. I'd say, Condi, did you read this? Did I miss anything? And uh, But he didn't do that. And if you get past all of that, yeah. okay, they give him a one-page summary. And in the one-page summary, there's a large section that says, Mr. President, be careful. Not everyone agrees about the aluminum tubes. In fact, there is significant disagreement from the State Department and the Department of Energy. Now, Steve, I was president. I think, what does the Department of Energy have to do with this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I got my no, – I, I, I step into the office. He's relatively new there at that time, kind of. And he, I said, well, I don't get it. I, I get the CIA talking about this. I get the State Department talking about this. What's the Department of Energy all about? And then somebody, an advisor, would say, uh, hey, Mr. President, uh, it's actually the Department of Energy knows most about nuclear weapons and how to make them. And uh, they would know exactly. It's the Department of Energy. Department of Energy. And, you need, and the way you make a nuclear weapon is with uh, nuclear energy. Oh, and I yeah. say, oh, that's interesting. Of course, yeah. I'm, you know, I can't believe I didn't think of that. So, uh, what is their assessment? And they say, no, these aluminum tubes cannot possibly be used for nuclear weapons. Now, it turned out the Department of Energy and the State Department were, of course, right. Uh, but what was interesting that happened is President Bush got this and and then went later in public and said that there were no doubts. And in his State of the Union, said. We have learned that uh, Saddam Hussein has gotten aluminum tubes that he is going to use for nuclear weapons. Not maybe, not I heard this and I heard that. He said that's what they're going to do. Right, and if we don't, the implication being if we don't act, Saddam Hussein is going to have a nuclear weapon which he could use against us or our allies. Let me, first of all, we're going to, when we finish setting the story up, we'll take your calls on it at 866-997-4748, 866-99-SERIOUS. Talk about this here on the Young Turks. Uh, but let me read, Jenk, the beginning of the piece, because it's not so much, you know, you think we're like, they knew this, too. It's not, we're not, Carl Rove recognized this, and I think that's almost what makes this more telling than most pieces. This is just the first paragraph is uh, what you need to read. Carl Rove, President Bush's chief political advisor, cautioned other White House aides in the summer of 2003 after we started, after we invaded Iraq that Bush's 2004 re-election prospects would be severely damaged if it was publicly disclosed that he had been personally warned, personally warned, that a key rationale for going to war had been challenged within the administration. Rove expressed his concerns shortly after an informal review of classified government records by then and now current National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley determined that Bush had had been specifically advised that claims he later made in the 2003 State of the Union address that Iraq was procuring high-strength aluminum tubes to build a nuclear weapon might not be true. So Rove reads this, uh, uh, reads this informal review of government records and realizes, oh, we, we inoculated him where we can claim he didn't know about uh, the, the Niger stuff, right, and the Joe Wilson stuff, and that he didn't know that that was, story was nonsense. But he was flat out told on a number of times that these aluminum twos were uh, not, that there was significant disagreement, which has been our point the whole time. That on every single uh, uh, area about relating to weapons of mass destruction where we invaded Iraq, that there were people in our government saying, no, no, not that there, I'll concede some people said yes, but there were a lot of people saying no, and they ignored them. And they knew if that got out that Americans would see the president as a liar who had misled us into war. So Carl Rove knew it. There's a couple of important uh, details here as well, and this is all in the piece, and we, by the way, put up the piece so you can read it yourself. 
on theyoungturks.com. It's a national journal piece by Murray Wass. Um, one is that they uh, had a coordinated campaign to make sure that the president didn't get blamed for the Niger, Niger, whatever you want to call it, let's call it Niger, uh, the Niger incident, where he said, you know, in the State of the Union, of course, let me read you the relevant part of both of those. In the State of the Union, the president said, um, the British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. At the time, we found out later that uh, our government already knew that that wasn't true. Uh, and we're going to get to that in a second. And then he said, our intelligence sources tell us that he has attempted to purchase high-strength aluminum tubes suitable for nuclear weapons production. And now we find out that the president also knew that that was in question, but he stated it authoritatively. Now, when the Niger thing broke and we knew that he was not trying to get uranium from Africa and the president knew that, what they did was they did a public relations campaign to make sure that George Tenet, who was then the acting chief of the CIA, took the responsibility and the blame for that. Apparently, Karl Rove and several of the other political advisors talked to the CIA director a couple of days before the CIA director came out publicly and made sure, and they even edited his notes to tell him what to say. So Tenet came out and basically fell on a sword, said, yes. you know what, my bad, I should have told him about that, I never told him about that, and it's not the president's fault, it's my fault. So they coordinated that PR campaign, and they figured they had themselves covered there. Whether the president knew it or didn't know it, at least they'd covered that up. Right, I don't believe for a second that he didn't know it, but in, as, as opposed to You wouldn't aluminum... have to do a PR campaign if the president didn't know it. Right. But unlike this aluminum tube thing, they have no, there's no, we're not going to, it doesn't appear we're going to un, uh, uncover any memos indicating that people had actually briefed him on that. But of course, people had almost certainly mentioned it to him. Of course. Now, uh, what happens next is uh, Stephen Hadley thinks, hey, we've got a national intelligence estimate here, this one page summary that we've been talking about, that shows that. Uh, in the, the this uranium claim without any uh, qualifiers in this one piece, and this is what's also really interesting about the piece. It's amazing how the Bush administration classifies and declassifies documents based purely on political motives. And his sources, Murray Wass's sources, are people that are currently in the administration. Formerly in the administration, he's not, doesn't have liberal sources, doesn't have democratic sources. No, these are people who were there for these debates. Exactly. They were in the room. These are people that were in the room telling this reporter what happened. And they would classify or declassify documents based only on politics, not on whether they could or couldn't for national security reasons. And so they're going to declassify this. They're, they were thinking of declassifying this one-page summary that said, hey, the, they're getting uranium from Africa. The British tell us they're getting uranium from Africa. They're like, see, that'll prove the president got this you know, and he didn't know any better. But then they noticed in the second half of that document, they talk about the aluminum tubes. And there's the big warnings from the State Department and the Energy Department saying, Mr. President, these aluminum tubes are not for nuclear weapons. And again, I just think it's significant. And also people inside the CIA. The CIA was not at all sold on it in any way, shape, or form. They, they, they're... They, they were reluctant, unlike the state and energy departments of state and energy, to come out right and say, no, we think it's for another purpose. But plenty of people in the CIA were saying exactly the same thing, which was, no, 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 it's not for a nuclear weapon. And what they did was, so they were about to declassify. Stephen Hadley was behind this. He was at the time number two at, at National Security Council. Now he's the National Security Advisor. And they said, oh, no, it's got the incriminating stuff in there. Then don't declassify it. Put it back as classified. It has nothing to do with national security, everything to do with politics. Right. So then they go on a, this Karl Rove campaign, abetted by uh, Stephen Hadley, to cover this up before the election. 
whatever you do, you cannot let it get out that the president actually knew the doubts about the weapons of mass destruction. And now we find out about it in, in retrospect that the president, of course, did know. So all this talk about, oh, poor George Bush got misled by his intelligence sources. Total, as Sherman Potter would say on MASH, horse hockey. Yeah, well, there's a lot, of, as Bob Sackett would say, horseshit. The world's locked up in your head. You've been pouring it a concrete bed. Your habits are suffice. From NPR and Chicago Public Radio, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm Carl Castle, and here's your host at the Lebanon Opera House in Lebanon, New Hampshire, Peter Sago. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, everybody. Now, New Hampshire, of course, is one of the most conservative states in the nation. And Vermont is, of course, one of the most liberal. And this week, we are broadcasting to you from right on the border. In just a couple of weeks, in fact, there's going to be the annual spring ritual of the mocking of the neighbors, <laughs> in which Vermonters and New Hampshireites gather on their respective sides of the Connecticut River, just a few miles from here, shout insults at each other, <laughs> and throw rotten fruit to the opposite bank. And then, true to their respective natures, the Vermonters gather up the produce to distribute to the needy. <laughs> and the New Hampshire people repackage theirs as organic produce and sell it to tourists at a 300% markup. <laughs> of course, we're giving away Carl's voice on your home answering machine at no charge, but you do have to call in and win one of our games. So give us a call at one triple eight. wait wait that's one 924 8924 It's time to welcome our first listener contestant this week. Hi, you're on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Hi, this is Mary McHugh from Fairfax, Virginia. Hey, Mary, how are you? I'm fine. How this are is the home of George Mason University, you know. Oh, I know. I've, I've heard of them. <laughs> that little school that could do it all, or at least yeah, yeah. almost all. Everybody's very excited there. Yeah, it's crazy around here. I wish I looked good in green and gold. Really? Had you ever, I'm going to ask you a question. Had you ever watched or paid attention to a George Mason University basketball game in your life before about two weeks ago? Uh, no, not even when I worked on the campus. There you are. <laughs> Just checking. Mm -hmm. Well, Mary, welcome to our show. Let me introduce you to our panel with us this week. First, say hello to a writer for the Boston Globe magazine, Mr. Charlie Pierce. Hey, Charlie. Hi, Mary. How are you? Fine. Also, say hello to one of the two women behind the Washington Post's reliable source column, the reliable sorceress, Ms. Roxanne Roberts. Hi, Roxanne. Hey, Mary. Go Patriots. I'm Oops. so excited for you. Oops. And also say hello to humorist and author, New Hampshire's own, Mr. P.J. O'Rourke. Hi, Mary. P.J., what a thrill. Oh, Mary, welcome to the show. Now, you're going to play Who's Carl this time. Carl Castle will start us off today with three quotes from the week's news. If you can correctly identify or explain just two of them, of course, you will win our prize. Carl's voice in your home answering machine saying, go Patriots, if that's still important to you by that time. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here is your first quote. The president has to have time to eat, sleep, and be merry, or he'll make angry, grumpy decisions. So I have to make sure he has time to eat, sleep, and be merry. 
That was someone in the Bush administration describing his job in an interview two years ago. This week, he told the president that somebody else would have to block out that executive be merry time. Who resigned his post? I guess that was uh, Andy Card. Yes, Andy Card. Very good. The president's now former chief of staff. For weeks now, pundits of every variety have said that the White House needs a staff shakeup to get out of its current doldrums. So this week, the president announced he'd be replacing his chief of staff, Andrew Card, a Bush insider who'd been with him since his first inauguration, with Office of Management and Budget Director Josh Bolton, a Bush insider who's been with the president since his first inauguration. <laughs> As for the new chief of staff, Mr. Bolton, he's known for his fondness for bowling. True, and the fact that he keeps a copy of the kids' book, Walter the Farting Dog, <laughs> on his office coffee table. That pretty what much it? explains Iraq's strategy. Yeah, it does. <laughs> what is the story with this administration and kids' books? I know. It, it, I it, mean, it, between a very hungry caterpillar and my pet goat and Walter the Farting Dog, did any of these people ever read the Hardy Boys? They'd have figured some stuff out. <laughs> Part of the leave no administration official I, behind I initiative. <laughs> now, one of the advantages that Mr. Bolton has, it turns out, as he takes over this important job, is that he's already very popular with the White House staff. This is a true, uh, an actual quote from, of course, Karl Rove. Quote, <laughs> quote, I love him in an entirely appropriate way. <laughs> All right, very good, Mary. Here is your next quote. I am about to be sent back to Cuba as it is. I better be careful. That was Senator Mel Martinez doing his best to be extra special careful as he and the rest of the Senate took up a controversial bill that would change how the nation deals with what issue? Oh, must be the illegal immigrants. Exactly right. Well, you know, we've taken care of Afghanistan. We've, 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 we've done a great job with Iraq more or less, and we would go kick Iran's butt, but they can maybe fight back. So, <laughs> conservative members of Congress picked a new target, those individual axes of evil who have the unmitigated gall to come here illegally and trim our hedges. <laughs> so Republicans in the House, they passed a bill cracking down on illegal immigrants very harshly. But the Senate this week started debate on a bill that would actually allow some illegals to stay here as guest workers. Legis the senators have yes. nannies. Exactly. Well, actually, <laughs> the, the, the title of the legislation is the But Who Else Will Trim Our Hedges Act of 2006. <laughs> exactly right. It's an ugly, ugly future out there without America's uh, illegal immigrants. I mean, Think about the Americans that aren't illegal immigrants. Would you let them in your house? I mean, no. <laughs> All right, Mary. Your last quote comes from a very angry letter sent this week to the Boston Herald newspaper. From watching too many episodes of The Sopranos, your staff seems to have acquired the belief that any Sicilian gesture is obscene. That was someone defending himself from the charges that he had made an obscene gesture at a reporter in church, no less, who says he may be Italian, but he is never rude. Justice Antonin Scalia. Very good. 
The Supreme Court Justice, after attending Mass at a Boston-area church, was asked by reporters if people could trust him to be impartial when it came to cases involving religion. Now, in response, he made a gesture, a gesture that you, listening at home, can make yourself right now. What you do is you, you, you lift your hand, you rest your fingernails under your chin, and you flick them forward as if removing a piece of lint, <laughs> trying to send it across the room. The Herald says this gesture was obscene. Scalia angrily denied it. And in response to his insult about watching too much Sopranos episodes, the Herald consulted a Sopranos cast member. In his judgment, quote, Well, it's not like grabbing your crotch, not that bad an obscenity, but it is an obscenity. It's something you would do after paying a bookie to your bookie, but not something you'd do in a church. We had a lively internet debate about this. We wrote about it this week. Oh, I love lively internet <laughs> <laughs> It was a lively it's internet cert debate. Certainly livened up your week. That was one of the great phrases of the early 21st century, lively <laughs> internet debate. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Tell us. I don't know if we'll be able to stand the excitement. <laughs> Actually, there's a piece of information that might help this. There uh, are readers. You actually found out what this meant. I did. No. I did. Um, there was uh, some debate about how insulting this really was and if it was obscene. And one of the readers wrote in and said, yes, but what does it actually mean, literally? And another reader said that it comes from the notion that you are not worth the hair on my chin. So that's so hence So it comes from the three pigs? <laughs> <laughs> there are nine. Oh, nine. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, Carl, how did Mary do in our quiz? Uh, very well, Peter. Mary had three correct answers. Mary, you win our prize. Congratulations. Right. Well done. Mary. Oh, the beginning of a. Another George Mason champion. That's right. The beginning of a big weekend in Fairfax. Well, absolutely. It's only the beginning, yes. Well, thanks so much for playing our game, Mary. Thanks for having. Bye-bye. Bye. Now then, panel, some questions for you about the week's news. Charlie, for the first time ever, the Hallmark Greeting Card Company revealed to the public its file of rejected cards. These were cards that were created by the staffers at Hallmark presented for sale, rejected by Sorry, the editors Sorry, your mother there. didn't make parole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> including, including one uh, get well card. It features a smiley face on the outside, and on the inside it said what? <laughs> Good luck on the biopsy. No. <laughs> Is your will in order? Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Wow. Mm. I need one more hint. Well, I, I don't have... Does anybody else know? Depression? No. On the outside, a little smiley face. You open it up. It says, Hi, welcome back from your coma. <laughs> <laughs> Other rejected greeting cards include one that reads on the outside, Spread some holiday cheer. And inside it says, Or drink alone. Who am I to judge? <laughs> Now, we're talking about the major breaking news today. Mary Watson, the National Journal, again reporting on a kind of a smoking gun memo that indicates that uh, the president did know about doubts in the uh, weapons of mass destruction case against Iraq. 
and that furthermore Karov and his cohorts uh, went out of their way to hide those, that fact in the 2004 election. And I'd always wondered why the effort was made to discredit Joe Wilson so thoroughly, why it was so important. Who sent him? A question I've been asking for so long. Why does it matter? If it matters what he found out. But their effort to discredit him was crucial. They kept the part that Bush knew about the aluminum tubes classified uh, and therefore wanted the sole focus to be on the other part, the, the, the seeking to get yellow cake from Niger that Wilson talked about. Wilson didn't talk about the uranium tubes. He only talked about the yellow cake from Niger. Bush, they had cover on, on that, that, that he had not been briefed that there was debate in the intelligence community on that. So they keep the other part classified and then go all after Joe Wilson in an effort to discredit him and keep the focus solely on the part about Niger and not on the other part for which the president had no cover for. Uh, that is, this is the first indication that I thought that seems to me to fall into some sort of strategy of why it was this important to discredit Joe Wilson. And I think it is because of out of a fear that if they didn't go after Joe Wilson, there might be a full focus on the next sentence that the president had in the State of the Union, whereas they kept talking about what the famous. 11 words in the 16 words the 16 words in the state of the union when it should have been the 28 words in the state of the union but by focusing on joe wilson they kept it at 16 words because wilson didn't talk about the tubes and that's what the president unquestionably had been briefed about finally it honestly makes sense to me uh, why they would sort of out a cia agent and discredit a distinguished diplomat and mislead the country i mean now at least there's a political reason for it they couldn't let people know that Bush knew about the aluminum tubes and therefore lied to the American people. 866-997-4748. We're going to take your calls in a second. 866-997-4748. Always on the youngturks.com as well where you could email us or watch the show. Now I want to give you Secretary Rice's quotes. At the time, she's a national security advisor and she's talking to the press. And at this point, she's already remembered. The president has received the memo with the doubts in it. And a copy of that has been sent to Cheney and Rice, and it is their job to read that. And it seems literally inconceivable that they didn't read it. And if they didn't read it, then it's gross negligence on their part right. to not read it. When it's one page, and it's ex the whole reason why you're invading a country. So, But she says at the time, when the reporters ask her about it, after she's read it, the president has read it. She says, now, if there were any doubts about the underlying intelligence of the National Intelligence Estimate, those doubts were not communicated to the president, to the vice president, or me. Now, that is nothing but a 100% lie by Condoleezza Rice. So people, she, of all the people in the administration, Condoleezza Rice still has by far the best popularity rate. You know what blatant lies get you in the Bush administration, though? Promotions. But let's, yeah. No, right. Jill's a thousand percent right. Well, yeah, because now they, if they don't, then you might mention that you lied. And, and then Hadley's everybody. The one, you're right. And Hadley's the one that coordinated this whole set of lies about the cover up before the 2004 election. What happened to him? Promotion. Let me, got promoted to the National Security we'll Advice. Take your calls in 30 seconds. I just want to make that, drive that point you're over. You're promoted. Because you said it, uh, you didn't say it wrong. You just said it backwards. And I want to read it the same way that Murray Wass wrote it to make it as clear as possible. Rice said, now, if there are any doubts about the underlying intelligence to that NIE, any doubts about it, those doubts were not communicated to the president, the vice president, or me. And then, in fact, the president was informed of such doubts when he received the October 2002 NIE. Both Cheney and Rice 
also got copies of that summary. It could not be more clear. Yep, so if you're still supporting Condoleezza Rice and you think, oh, she's just innocent and got sucked up in all this, no way, you no know, way. They're all knee-deep in it. And to my reporter friends who said three months ago, or we really want to have a conversation, do we really need to be talking about where we misled into the war? Yes, we needed to talk about it three months ago. We need to talk about it now. At what, when we should, we should stop talking about it when these guys are out of office. This is Ben Mankiewicz from the Young Turks. If you'd like to podcast the entire Young Turks show, please go to our website at www.theyoungturks.com for more information. You can also support the show by becoming a TYT member or by purchasing Young Turks merchandise. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, let me just tell you, you have got no idea just how aware I am that all of your feeds just got all screwed up and that, you know, if you're using iTunes or whatever you're using, it just tried to download all the shows over again and they're all maybe in a different order or it's a mess. Today I had the proverbial total meltdown of the website um my my work schedule is uh tuesday through saturday so so today's monday and i spent my entire day off rebuilding the entire website not quite from scratch but you know basically you know copy and paste from the old to the new and and then uploading the whole thing that takes like five hours or so, so that's why a bunch of old episodes have now been taken down because it would have just taken twice as long to, to get everything up. So I, I apologize for the mess, but uh, believe me, I'm, I'm paying a bigger price than you are. It, it's, it's been a complete clusterfuck today. So that's just a little explanation for you. I want to say again, the... Uh, the reviews on iTunes are going fantastically. Thank you very much. It's going it's going very well to leave your own review. You can uh, go to the website, you know, because I think that by the time this show is posted, the website should be, you know, looking normal again. Um, go to the website, and there are all kinds of ways that you can help support the show. They're listed uh, very conspicuously. Under the title, Support the Show, you can um, leave reviews on iTunes. Uh, it's a brand new month, which means that the voting at Podcast Alley has been reset. So if you'd like to vote for the show there, that would also be appreciated. Um, I, just, um, I just posted a new uh, listener survey that you can take. I have not taken it myself. My understanding is that it takes about five minutes to fill out. Uh, that would help me out a lot just to, you know, in, in all the different avenues I'm pursuing to help uh, get more exposure to the show. That That's what that's what it's all about. And then, of course, uh, the last the last thing is that if you um, you know, if you're walking around and you're thinking, man, I have got too much money and you know like maybe you're working for um exxon or something like that um you know you're probably just walking around you're like god what am i gonna do with all this money i've got well 
maybe a small part of that answer is that you can send it to me. It would uh, help me out a lot just in, uh, you know, paying for the website and bandwidth and all of those things. If if you're a podcast listener, you've probably heard other people complain about similar things in the past. So that's, that's what it's all about. It's, you know, it's not a free show to run, but on the other hand, it's not, um, it's not breaking my bank or anything. So just if you, uh, if if you're feeling good with your finances and and you want to help support the show and 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 you want to help me out in that way, I'm I'm not going to argue with you. So that's it for today. Thanks again, everybody. Have a good one.